Ho, ho, ho. Gentle Giant. <laughs> Podcast Square, come good listeners, both wretched and fair, to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. My name is Mike DeFabio, and I have come from hell, and I'm here with John McFerrin and Phil Maddox. So uh, recently we've discussed uh, the albums Spiderland and Beatles for Sale. But our host this week is John. John, what <laughs> many-limbed invertebrate do you have for us, and why did you pick it? So this week, we will be discussing the 1972 album Octopus by Gentle Giant. So Gentle Giant is a band that gets mentioned an awful lot on this podcast, especially considering how obscure they are outside the world of hardcore prog rock fandom. They came up in the series we did on Mike's homemade prog rock compilation last year, but they also seem to come up whenever we're looking for comparison points for music that's twisted and screwy yet surprisingly memorable. And in one of my greatest flexes on this podcast, they even came up during our Beastie Boys episode on Paul's Boutique. Yep. Gentle Giant has a lot of great and interesting music, but to me, the crown jewel of their career is Octopus, so we're covering it today. All right, John, what is your history with Gentle Giant? I first became familiar with Gentle Giant by name during college, when my interest in 70s progressive rock was becoming intense enough that I realized I was going to have to go beyond the most famous names like Yes, Genesis, King Crimson, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and the like. I bought this one in the self-titled debut first, and while I genuinely enjoyed the debut right away, I was actually shocked at how much I immediately enjoyed this, given how much I had read about how it was so twisted and difficult and some of the most complicated prog rock of its time. All of these statements are true in an objective sense, but that is not exactly what I heard. I heard this album as a bunch of twisted and difficult and complicated prog rock that fell backwards into becoming bonkers, catchy, almost pop songs. And even today, my mental shorthand for how I feel about this album is to think of it primarily as the greatest accidental pop album of all time. I eventually got all of their albums, and while none of them has ever surpassed Octopus for me, they became a band that I really like and that has only gone up for me over time. I am also obligated to note that in 2019, Gentle Giant released an enormous box set called Unburied Treasure, which contains all 11 of their studio albums, 
18 discs of live material, and all sorts of assorted curios from a face mask to a puzzle. Only 2,000 of those box sets were issued, and you had better believe that one of them sits on a shelf six feet from where I sleep every night. All right, Phil, how about you and Gentle Giant? So I had read about them a bunch when I was in high school as, you know, because they were covered pretty extensively by the web reviewing community that we all came from. But I never actually found any of their albums because this was a time where you had to go to record stores. And a lot the record stores that I went to just simply never had any of their albums. So I got to college and I went to the student bookstore, which had a CD section. And lo and behold, there was Three Friends by Gentle Giant. <laughs> so I picked that up and I thought it was pretty good. It didn't blow me away. I'm like, oh, this is neat. And then I just kind of filed it away. And then a couple of years later, I got Octopus. And it pretty much blew me away right away, much like with John. And then I didn't really think much about other Gentle Giant for a long time after that. I eventually went back and got um, their other albums, and I eventually became a hardcore enough fan that I have another of those 2,000 unburied treasure box sets sitting in my house. Woo! But uh, yeah, just a very, very interesting band that uh, has grown on me more and more with time. I think that's kind of a very common thing with Gentle Giant. The more you listen to them, you tend to really kind of get what they're getting at and like them more. That was certainly true for me. Yep. Yeah. So as for me, uh, this is another case like King Crimson, where uh, just knowing who Gentle Giant are puts me ahead of most people. But <laughs> in in this setting, I'm the only person on this episode who doesn't own the Unburied Treasure Box set. So I'm I'm poser. in the position of, yeah, total poser noob. Uh, for only owning like seven other albums. Yes. But I got into Gentle Giant in much the same way uh, John and Phil did. You know, I was getting, I knew all the real big name prog bands like Genesis and Yes. And I had been reading, I had been reading about Gentle Giant mostly on uh, George Starriston's page. He was, yeah. he was getting really into them. And I remember he, he was, he was reviewing Gong around the same time too. And they sounded really interesting. So one day I went to the record store and I came home with Octopus and a Live Etc. by Gong. That wasn't a that wasn't a big haul, but it was a good one. It got me into two really, really cool bands. And my process of getting into Gentle Giant from there, like the Octopus was pretty easy to find. I think it had like the little nice price sticker on it. Yep. But a lot of their other ones were were tougher to track down. Yeah, so, good luck getting, like, civilian. Right. Like, I mean, you can get it now, but, like, 2,000. Yeah. You could mostly find, like, you know, interview and the albums nobody likes. So I'm still in the process of getting into Gentle Giant, even though it's, like, 20-something years later. And it's true. The, the more you listen to them, the more you love them. Yep. So, John, what, what can you tell us about this Gentle Giant?
history of Gentle Giant and the history of the band up through Octopus centers primarily around three brothers. Phil Shulman, born in 1937 in the slums of Glasgow, Scotland. Derek Shulman, born in 1947, also in Glasgow. And Ray Shulman, born in 1949 in Portsmouth, England. The Shulmans were a very musical household, and their father, himself a jazz trumpeter, encouraged his sons to all learn to play as many instruments as they wished. And it turned out that they wished to play very many instruments. In the early 1960s, the brothers formed an R&B slash blue-eyed soul act that eventually settled on the name Simon Dupree and the Big Sound. And the band eventually became notable for two reasons. First, the release in late 1967 of a sort of psychedelic single called Kites, which broke into the top 10 in the UK. And second, because the band, during its 1967 tour of Scotland, briefly worked with a keyboard player named Reginald Dwight, who would later move on to greater success under the stage name Elton John. The Shulmans hated Kites, and they attempted to escape its success by changing their name to The Moles and releasing a two-part single called, in fact, we are the moles. We are the moles and we stay in the hole. Oh, oh, oh. Hiding our faces, revealing our soul. The moles gained some notoriety due to a rumor that the moles were secretly the Beatles recording under a pseudonym with Ringo Starr on lead vocals, but the single itself didn't do much. The Shulmans felt stuck, and they decided to dissolve the band in favor of a new one. But instead of moving on to something in line with their original vision, they decided it was time to jump headfirst into the world of prog rock and to carve out their own niche. Gentle Giant itself formed in 1970, after the Shulmans picked up one of their old Simon Dupree drummers, Martin Smith, and two additional multi-instrumentalists, Gary Green, who played guitar, among other things, and Kerry Manier, who played keyboards, among other things. The band quickly established an instrumental dynamic where each member had a specialty, but where they would routinely switch instruments, often with each other, and often within a given song. Derek was primarily the lead vocalist. Phil was primarily the horns and woodwinds player and a secondary vocalist. And Ray was primarily the bassist and violinist. But again, these roles were very fluid. The band released its self-titled debut in November 1970, 
and it immediately put on full display the band's interest in combining the genres of pop, classical, rock, and jazz into something new. Derek Shulman would later describe their approach as akin to, quote, a big funnel, end quote. And on their debut, this resulted in classic tracks such as Funny Ways, which would later get sampled on the album Mad Villainy by Mad Villain, which Mike and Rich discussed back in episode 103. In 1971, the band released the album Acquiring the Taste, which, in addition to an album cover that aggressively challenges the bounds of good taste, (laughs) also contains a comment on the sleeve where, in supposed contrast to the debut, they state that, quote, we have abandoned all preconceived thoughts of blatant commercialism, end quote. It is worth noting here that the track Wreck has previously been discussed on Discord and Rhyme. In our glorious 2021 bonus episode on the greatness and terror of the Mellotron. After acquiring the taste, Martin Smith left due to artistic disagreements, and he was replaced by a man named Malcolm Mortimer. The band's next album, Three Friends, is ostensibly a concept album, but only in the loosest sense of the term. And its primary appeal for me comes from providing some of the band's most complicated and sophisticated music, and some of its most accessible music, often at the same time. The music we heard at the start of this history comes from the track Prologue, which opens that album. After the recording of Three Friends, but before its release, Malcolm Mortimer had a motorcycle accident. The band still needed to go on tour, so they replaced him with a man named John Weathers, who was basically grown in a lab to someday become the drummer for Gentle Giant. In addition to his excellent drumming chops, he could also sing and participate in the band's multi-instrumental mayhem by playing guitar. And much more importantly, he consistently made some of the greatest faces while drumming that have ever been captured in photos or in videos. Hell yeah, he did. Yep. He constantly <laughs> looks like he's having very weird sex. It's <laughs> a good description. The band went into the studio in July 1972 with the intent of making a concept album roughly built around writing a song about each band member. But they quickly grew bored with this idea and instead decided to just make the best music they could without worrying about how it held together thematically. Octopus, released in December 1972, did absolutely nothing charts-wise in either the US or the UK. But among people who like progressive rock, it is consistently and justifiably ranked as one of the greatest albums in the genre. 
and we hope here to provide a sense of why. All right, so before we get started on Octopus, it's time to say thank you once again to our subscribers on Patreon, who keep the show working all day like it's nothing at all. If you also dislike ads and want to help us keep going without them, go to patreon.com slash discordpod, and in return you can get access to our production notes, a Discord and Rhyme sticker, and an extra episode every month where we probably bring up Gentle Giant at some point. Or Nazareth. Or Nazareth. Or in excess, which uh, Rich and Ben just talked about. We also have a merch store hosted at TeePublic. Just search for Discord Pod or click the link in the show description. And if you click on any of the Amazon affiliate links on our website, we'll get a small commission on anything you might happen to buy on that visit, including giant sea creatures or a glass house. We'd also appreciate it if you left a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening, which will help other podcast listeners acquire the taste for us. As for social media, the plain truth is we've mostly given up on Twitter, but you can find us on Instagram at DiscordPod or email discordpod at gmail.com. And now it's time for... Panurge? What is a panurge? Let's find out! They're coming over Chariton Bridge. Look, do you see the man who is poor rich? What do you wish and where, where do you go? wish? Where do you go? Where are you? Where are you, where where are you from? from? Will you tell me your name? Will you tell me your name? Rest a while, call me your friend. Please stay with me, I'd like to help. Then he said, How can I speak when I'm How dry? Can I speak is when I'm dry? So bring me aid and I'll answer you. And I'll answer your dear friend in need. I'd like your help. Please take me home. I'll stay with you. of Panurge is my favorite Gentle Giant song, and it is among my very favorite prog rock tracks from anyone. Also, were it not for the internet, I would have no idea what it's about, because I am an uncultured swine. It is loosely tied to a series of novels called The Five Books of the Lives and Deeds of Gargantua and Pantagruel, by the 16th century French satirist Francois Rabelais. The advent of Panurge portrays an episode from the second book called Pantagruel, in which the titular character, 
himself a gentle giant of sorts, meets his new lifelong friend, Panurge, and in which Panurge responds to Pantagruel's request for friendship in every language, except for the one Pantagruel himself knows. That's it. No mysticism, no philosophy, just a telling of an obscure story that I have to assume was a Shulman family favorite. You know what, this isn't really a lyrics kind of song anyway. The advent of Panurge lasts around 4 minutes and 45 seconds, but it easily has the density of ideas to support a track twice that length. You have the mind-boggling complexity, yet strange memorability of that vocal arrangement, with Carrie and Phil's angelic vocals getting balanced by Derek's earthier vocals. You have that killer bass line, with tight yet off-kilter drumming providing a solid foundation for a mind-boggling array of keyboards that aren't there for virtuosity so much as they are to make the sound extra bewildering. And then you have one of my favorite stretches in all of prog rock, where a flurry of staccato trumpet notes, followed by a staccato vocal line, gets shot at the listener like pellets from a paintball gun, before finally resolving in a way that feels like the song's mid-level save point. I also have to highlight the portion of the song that depicts the stretch where Panurge responds to Pantagruel in a series of indecipherable languages. If you feel lost in this passage, don't focus on the vocal sounds. Focus instead on that tight bass and drums groove, and focus on the spare jazzy piano chords Carrie lays on top of it. Gentle Giant, with some exceptions, was not generally a band that expressed its virtuosity by stretching out. It was a band that, at least in its early period, expressed its virtuosity by making everything tighter and more intricate in the small details, yet doing so in a way that still felt like it was made by people instead of robots. I could go on. For now, I will suffice to say that I loved this track immediately, and when I made my own first stab at an introduction to prog rock compilation back in college, this was track number two. All right, Phil, what do you think of Panurge? I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. The fact that it's not my obvious favorite Gentle Giant track really has more to do with just how good Gentle Giant are. Sure. That they have, you know, other candidates, but I would say this is the kind of track that really captures just about everything Gentle Giant do. Yes. You've got all of their, you know, kind of pseudo-medieval vocal harmonies. You've got, you know, 10 different sections that all somehow work together. 
just fantastic arrangement. Like that part that you mentioned, John, where the look at my friend, look around my friend part, I would agree that is possibly my favorite moment in the whole Gentle Giant catalog. Hmm. It's really great. And it was really cool. Like they they would play this live pretty Mm -hmm. frequently as part of a medley. Yep. And this song really also sounds great live just because when they start, you know, putting like real live energy into it and you can just hear John Weathers go into town on the drums. Yep. And it just works. And also, I mean, this band can actually play this live, which is very impressive. But I'd say this song kind of falls into the category. Like, if you don't like this, you're probably not going to like Gentle Giant very much. (laughs) Probably not. Because, like, this is most of what they do, and they rarely did it better. So if you're looking for, you know, a one-stop shop to think if you're going to enjoy the music of Gentle Giant, I mean, here's where to go. If you like this, then good news. If you don't like it, well, I would recommend keep going anyway, but uh, it's going to be rougher. Yeah, this is a great, not just a great introduction to the album, but a a great introduction to Gentle Giant in general, because it has so many, they fit so many good ideas into this song. And, you know, compare that to, say, Maroon 5, who still haven't (laughs) had one. You know, this is going to be a recurring theme on this album, but it's so tightly packed they fit a lot of ideas into a relatively small space. Like their songs generally are on the shorter side for progressive rock and they don't let anything go to waste. I love how the song and the album begin because first of all, it's, it's a very dynamic album. It's so it starts very quietly with the band sounding kind of like a bunch of dorks. Mm-hmm. They sound like the the house band at medieval times or something. And then about a minute in, they launch into that groove and they they show you, oh, we can also do this. Gentle Giant, they're, they're a band that's always pulling the rug out from under you. Constantly. In, in really fun, interesting ways. Another thing I love about this song and a thing I like about Gentle Giant in general is that we've kind of been saying the same basic thing, but there's not an ounce of fat on this. None. No. It's less than five minutes. It's so tight. You can't drop anything with it. Right. But it's every second of it is earned, too. Yes. There's not a second I would cut, and they could have easily extended it, but they didn't. And I think it works. It's all the better for it. Like, I enjoy listening to Gentle Giant when I really don't want to hear bands just kind of go into, like, a groove or just extend ideas out to fill space. This whole album is like 34 minutes long. It sure is. And it's just fantastic how well they trimmed everything down to the bone, but, you know, made everything work. Yeah. But let's move on to the next track, which is Raconteur Troubadour. Gather around the village square Come good people, both wretched and fair the story telling how 
General Giant more or less shared lead vocal duties in terms of how responsibilities were divided, at least in the first few albums. But Derek was clearly the band's frontman. Even if his voice was not what you would immediately expect to hear from a lead vocalist, per se. It's largely for this reason that I really like the band's decision to make track two start with Derek's voice from note one. Just as the advent of Panurge starts with Carrie's voice from note one. It's a great example of thoughtful album construction. And as we frequently mention in regards to albums we cover on Discord and Rhyme, it helps make this an excellent track, too. Raconteur Troubadour is a song with a much simpler lyric inspiration than its predecessor. It's Derek singing about what he and his bandmates probably would have done in an earlier time and in another life, which was to go from one medieval village to another and play music and tell stories for pennies, which, come to think of it, was kind of what they did in this time in life. It's a fairly simple idea, yet the band manages to build a fascinating structure of memorable majesty around it, with just a touch of melancholy lingering under the surface. The track also has a midsection I enjoy a lot, which almost feels to me like a cinematic montage of all the different instruments the titular musician breaks out in different contexts to try and get just a little bit more change out of his audience. Troubadour lasts about four minutes. And like so many of the best Gentle Giant songs, those four minutes feel to me like they contain an entire world. Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. I, I like that lyric interpretation because it, it makes it more than just like, woo, we're at a Renaissance fair. Yeah. It's pondering. You know, it's something I'm sure lots of people think about, which is, you know, if if I'd been born in some other time and place, would I be doing more or less the same thing? Yeah. Like uh, if Discord and Rhyme were around in uh, the 19th century, would it be a French salon or something? Uh, what, I, what I really like about this one is that that one melody that it's based around, it never goes away. It's all the different sections are based around that same basic theme just getting transmogrified in a bunch of different ways it's it's always yeah, I'm pretty there. sure that a large chunk of the midsection is a counterpoint yep yeah so it's 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 fun just to listen to it and and count the different ways it pops up because it never leaves and it's this is a, a type of song that for a time 
this was like the least cool thing you could do. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think things have come back around to to where it's it's not that at all. Like I think if anybody listening has heard the, the episode on helium from a ways back, I think Mary Timoney would be super into this song. Yes. And just gentle giant in general. But uh, Phil, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. Like, I could totally hear some like modern indie band, like something Mumford and Sons adjacent, mm. you know, doing something similar to this. But yeah, it's uh, it's a very good song. Um, I really do like how it has, you know, it's simple melody, which it's not that simple. It's doing, you know, lots of weird, gentle, gianty things, but, you know, simple for their standards. And then I do love that just crazy midsection, which... A lot of bands would like build that out for like eight minutes, but Gentle Giant, they're like, nope, here's 45 seconds or whatever. Yep. One minute. Back to the verse and we out. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing just hits you, does everything it's going to do, gets out of there, and it's great and punchy and I love it. All right. Well, in that spirit, I guess we'd better move on to track three, A Cry for Everyone. to a cry for everyone were inspired by the writings of the 20th century Algerian French philosopher Albert Camus. If you are expecting me to provide any deeper insight than that, then I regret to inform you that the full extent of my knowledge here is that Camus can do, but Sartre is smarter. Yeah, well, Scooby-Doo can do-do, but Jimmy Carter is smarter. This track is a good example of how, when Gentle Giant wanted to nudge their sound in the direction of more mainstream music, they could absolutely pull it off with style and verve. 
Gary Green's guitar tone when playing those riffs is monstrous. Gentle Giant actually went on tour as the opening act for Black Sabbath right before recording Octopus. And while it's easy to laugh at what an absurd pairing that made, I don't think the two bands were quite as far apart as people might naturally think. Of course, the band doesn't stay in the hard rock foundation of the beginning for that long, and they break out some of their gnarliest instrumental passages of the album in this track. But they don't fully abandon the guitar riffage as a central feature either. typically get as much attention as some other tracks from the album, but I think it's really good. I also think it's really good. I think it's interesting that this song does start off for 30 seconds like it's going to be like kind of a normal hard rock song before it gets all gentle giantified. Yeah. yeah. And has like so many little weird, interesting diversions, but I think it all works. I think every part flows naturally from the previous parts. Whenever it comes back to the main melody, it's great. And, you know, like John said, like, the riffing just sounds so good here. And I would agree as well. Like, you know, it it's not as weird a pairing as you might think. Like if you listen to, you know, some of the weird medieval vocals that, you know, Gentle mm-hmm. Giant do sometime, you might think it's a little bit weird that they're playing with Black Sabbath, but they could rock pretty hard. There's plenty of stuff on like Three Friends that I could see like the Black Sabbath audience enjoying. Also, a few years later, Black Sabbath was doing things like Super Tsar. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's it's not completely alien between the two bands. doing stuff by like solitude like at the same time yeah yeah on an early version a sort of a a rough draft version of the the prog comp i made this was the gentle giant song i picked oh interesting yeah i was it was kind of going in a different direction i was i was mixing more like sort of heavy psych in there and this fit more in with that but it's it's easy to think of this one as like the more straightforward hard rock song on the album because that's, you know, the most memorable part is that. Yeah. But Gentle Giant can't let anything just be <laughs> the thing that it sounds like. Uh, this has so much weird stuff going on. It takes so many weird turns and they're all they're all so much fun. I mean, when that that organ line comes in that goes. some deep part of my brain that wakes up and goes oh yeah that's yep. the stuff i mean it hits that there's the part in the second half that, that we clipped where it just kind of turns into santana for a while yes and yep. then it just uh stops dead and goes into this like moog synthesizer weirdness that is also wonderful uh, there, there's so much and it's parts of it sound like 
the missing link between Tarkus and Devo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just so busy and i like i mean that in a good way there's so many little details i like like right before it goes back to the verse melody there's this wow sound effect that they use and it's awesome (laughs) is it silly of course is it necessary no am i glad (laughs) it's there hell yeah oh yeah all right well let's let's move on to a song that I'm sure glad is there. <laughs> Your mileage may vary. Track four is knots. All in all, each man, man in all men, in and all men in each man. He can, can see, she see, can, she can see, she can see, she can see whatever, whatever. You may know what you I may don't know, what I don't know, what I don't know, I don't know, I can't tell you, so you will. Knots is the point on Octopus where somebody who might tolerate the band thus far could reasonably go, what on earth is this? And nope, right on the hell out. Naturally, because my brain is broken, I fell in love with this track immediately. One of the major things that sets Gentle Giant apart from other prog rock bands is the nature of its relationship to classical music. During the heyday of prog rock in the early 70s, it became a cliche when writing about various acts within and adjacent to prog rock to mention that a band was incorporating aspects of classical music into its sound. This kind of observation was deployed both as a compliment and as an insult but it almost always overestimated just how much classical influence actually made it into the music. Most of the time, this influence manifested primarily in a willingness to use elongated song structures and to deploy orchestral arrangements, real or simulated, that harkened back to 19th century romanticism in their general sound. Keith Emerson certainly went a step further in his work with The Nice and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, showing an eagerness to adapt works outside of this time window in adventurous ways. But if we're considering his original compositions, for instance, Tarkas, as grand as something like it might be, it's still much closer to rock music in totality than it is to classical. Just had a press 
save every single hair on his head. He's dead. The minister of hate had just arrived too late to be spared. Who cared? The weaker in the Gentle Giant was a very different situation. Prior to joining the band, Carrie Manier graduated from the Royal Academy of Music in London with a degree in composition. Among many other things, this meant that Manier was well acquainted with one of the dominant compositional approaches of the 20th century, called neoclassicism. Summarized irresponsibly briefly, neoclassicism was about borrowing compositional forms and techniques from previous centuries, typically tweaking them in interesting ways, and applying the looser harmonic boundaries of the 20th century so as to give the sound some crunch. Knotts is one of the very best illustrations of this in the Gentle Giant catalog. The vocal arrangement is constructed in the style of a madrigal, a formal procedure often used for secular vocal music in the Renaissance era, in which multiple vocal parts weave in and out of each other in ways that, in the extreme, can make the music sound like it's, well, getting tied up in knots. If the only thing this track had going for it was just the use of the magical form, even the use of a magical form in what's still fundamentally a rock-ish album, I would not love this as much as I do. I love this as much as I do because it is a hundred times more engaging and, dare I say it, catchy as hell than it has any business being. I could potentially clip every single moment of this song beyond the initial portion we already played, but I'm limiting myself to two. First, this track actually reaches a satisfactory harmonic resolution multiple times. Gentle Giant at this point still understood that you need an effective release of tension in order to make the build of tension worth it. They didn't always remember this in later years, but the tension release here is amazing. Second, there's a great portion where the music takes what had previously been one of the secondary vocal lines, turns it into a unison riff for the guitar and the bass, and shoves it into the forefront of the piece. This is one of my favorite compositional techniques when done well, and the combination of the riff and the claning piano in this part completely wins me over. vocal part just jammed in the middle there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I should also briefly mention the lyrics, which were inspired by the writings of a Scottish psychiatrist named Artie Lane. I will not quote them here. However, I will note that when Mike, Phil, and I discussed this track in an episode we did in 2022, as part of a series Discord and Rhyme collectively did 
on Mike's excellent homemade compilation in defense of prog rock, I had some thoughts on the lyrics there, and I recommend that you seek out that episode and that entire series. All right, Phil, what do you think of Knots? Yeah, okay, so it's hard to pick a favorite Gentle Giant song. If I had to, though, I think it might be Knots. I could see it. It's fantastic. So before I got this album, I had kind of been warned about Knots, about how <laughs> weird and unpleasant it is and how, you know, a lot of people don't like it. And kind of like John, I just I heard this and it just absolutely blew me away. Like this was the track that really made me realize, oh, Gentle Giant are something special because this vocal arrangement is just so impossibly complex, but it all makes sense. It's not just, you know, random sounds or, you know, just stuff thrown at the wall. It all works. It all somehow connects. And then, like John said, it actually does resolve at times. It's not just a bunch of dissonance thrown at you. It has a point. All the weird, like, repeated words and, like, lyrics and the way they kind of really do generate the image of the song kind of being tied into a knot with all, you know, the overlapping words and phrases and things that sound like they're in the wrong order. It's just, yep. it's absolutely masterful song construction. I think it's not just my favorite Gentle Giant song, but one of my favorite songs of all time by anyone. Yeah, I genuinely love Knots. And it's hard. I've, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how to properly express that without it coming across as like the weird one Mike likes because I, I have a <laughs> an image to maintain as the weird music guy. But no, this is like I think it's a genuinely great piece of music that has like, you know, an emotional resonance and all the you know all the things great music has. Um, the way I would describe it is it's like being presented with some kind of mind boggling conundrum that you just cannot figure out. And then you have this eureka moment Yep. when it all falls into place and makes sense. And that's when you run naked down the street <laughs> <laughs> proclaiming you've, you found the answer. And then when, you know, when the weird dissonant stuff comes back after, then the whole band is joined in because, you know, now it all makes sense. You see how all the parts fit together and work. I don't want to repeat too much of what I said on the, the prog comp episode, but I will say this ended up being my choice for a gentle giant song, even though it's kind of it's a little it's a little in your face. <laughs> it might push some people away, but it's if it's not the best gentle giant song, it's the most gentle giant song. It's on the short list. Everything that they do, everything that makes them gentle giant and what makes them so interesting and great is just cranked all the way up on this song i've i've got to mention that xylophone solo in the middle <laughs> which is yes. just so for a, a type of music that you know has traditionally been made fun of for being super serious that's just one of the wackiest things i've ever heard things about that xylophone solo and how it interacts with the other uh, instruments is that 
if, if you listen carefully, you know, there's a long uh, melody line such as it is, but it's being uh, chopped up and you have some parts of it in, in some parts taken up by the xylophone and uh, some parts taken up by piano and some parts by other instruments. And there's actually a formal term uh, for this. It's called a Kleinfarben melody. Yes. Which is a German word. <laughs> I got it. Uh, yeah, which which literally means sound color melody. It's uh, something that it, it's, it's been used a lot uh, through the centuries, but it became a favorite uh, arrangement technique for composers in the 20th century, especially as, especially when you got into 12 tone and serialist music. Um, it's a it's something that you can use to vary the music when you're kind of stuck. At, you're not at a point where you're at the liberty to really uh, play with the melody yet but you want to give some variety to it. So you just take the the sound that you have and then you just split it over a series of different instruments. would know what a Kleinfarben melody is and he knows sure. how to use it well. It's not just something he's dabbled with. Like he really knows what he's doing with it. And it gives a uh, gentle giant a leg up on other bands that might try to do a similar thing. Like he really, really knows what he's doing and guiding the others and how to, to integrate this into their sound. Yeah. And if, if you want, I think the best way to really sort of hear what I hear in this song and what makes it great rather than just like something I can pull out to, I don't know, look smart or something. Listen to a song like Design, for instance, yes. from their their album Interview. Yep. And then come back to Knots because Knots will sound like all my loving or something. Yes. By comparison, because Design is it has a lot of intelligent thought and work put into it. And it's just crap. I don't like it at all. In my day, had to have certain future. But now, you can do you like. All that I might have wanted. Seeking what you're after. But no, for me. It's the same tools, but by a band that has largely lost the spark of inspiration, has lost the spark of genius, at least for the time being. Yeah. Like Knots is made by a group of musicians who are absolutely churning at the top of their game. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, last thing, this song has been sampled. Yes. And this is, this is a sample that was just sitting under my nose. I had no idea it was Gentle Giant. But it was used in Legend Has It by Run the Jewels. What? Hear what I say. We are the business today. Fuck shit is finished today. RT and J. We the new PB and J. We dropped the classic today. We did a tablet of acid today. 
day. Lit joints with the matches and ashes away. We dash away. Donna and Dixon, the pistol is rattling away. Doctors of death, killing our patients of breath. We ought to pay you the trust. Hoping it work. Hooking up curses and slurs. Gentle Giant are a band that have been sampled a lot more than a person might expect. Yeah. And I think much to their credit, they've kind of embraced their role as uh, unexpected hip hop gold mine. They actually have, if you go to the official Gentle Giant Spotify, they have a playlist called Gentle Giant, the hip hop samples. And it's all, it's all nice. Gentle Giant songs that have been sampled, followed by the songs that have sampled them. And there are a lot of them. They even have, there's an album of theirs called, you know, a compilation called Under Construction. That's mostly like, you know, demos and like works in progress and things. But there's a track on there that's just like isolated bits of songs that are free to sample. <clears throat> so I, I think that's really cool of them to sort of like see their place in you know the musical lineage right. and everything. Yeah. George Clinton did a similar thing. So, yes, the two peas in a pod, George Clinton and <laughs> Gentle Giant. Yeah. Yep. P-Funk is prog, but y'all ain't ready for that conversation. I was going to make a joke about G-Funk, and then I realized, like, oh, that's actually already a thing. (laughs) (laughs) True to Gentle Giant form, we've already made it to side two of the album, so let's let's flip it over and move on to track five. The Boys in the Band. short period of time after the release of Octopus, it became standard practice for the band to perform the material from this album in the form of an extended medley, lasting around 15 minutes. And it also eventually became standard practice for this track to kick off the medley. The Boys in the Band is an instrumental, a chance for the various band members to get in some featured performances without the vocals taking up space. And I basically like it, but it's also my least favorite track on the album by a considerable distance. This is the track where my broad conception of the album as an accidental pop album, which I think holds up pretty well otherwise, essentially breaks down completely. And I hear it as a technically impressive but surprisingly generic chops exercise of a variety that the band typically avoided. I could understand if somebody loved this track. 
but there are plenty of other tracks on this album that I would rather spend time gushing about. Yeah, this is this is a track I like, not love. Yeah, I do appreciate the purpose it serves because it makes a great introduction to the octopus medley. Yes, it's very rousing. It's very we're going to have some fun now. Jello Giant sounded like this all the time. I would probably think they're neat, but wouldn't really love them. But it's it's neat to have a song like this on here because I kind of see Octopus as sort of like it's one of those albums where instead of a greatest hits album, the band gives you a greatest hits of all their styles. Yeah. Octopus gives you every facet of Jello Giant and you get to hear everything they do. And the boys in the band is the song where they shred. And confining that to one track, I think, works really well. I think it's interesting how this is arranged because it's almost kind of a jazz-like structure where they have a theme. I was thinking that, too. Mm, Yeah. They state the theme, then there's a bunch of instrumental stuff, then they state the theme again and then back around, except all the different parts they're doing are, you know, completely different. This track always just kind of struck me as like a clearinghouse for ideas. Yes. Mm. Like they had some parts that they thought were cool. And they couldn't really make them work in other places. So they're just, well, let's put them in this like kind of cool idea medley and kind of glue it all together with a theme. I don't think it's particularly memorable outside of, you know, the main theme, but I think it's pretty exciting while it's playing. And I really do like it. It's, it's not one of my favorite tracks on the record, but I think it's pretty dang cool. Though I do think uh, the band kind of realized a little bit what they had here with kind of the opening theme, because eventually they took the same basic opening theme and tweaked it a bit. And they later turned it into an actual song from one of their later albums called Cogs in Cogs. So, you know, they were onto something here and they eventually got it into a song. But here, just as a bunch of cool riffs and parts and ideas, it's a very fun four minutes. Yeah, they're a band that is it's fun to listen to them play. It's also got, I think, the most well-recorded coin flip I've ever yes, heard. It sounds sure. like it's right on the table in front of you. Well, let's move on to track six. This is Dog's Life. <laughs> Shuffling down the street with his sideways feet Stopping now and then and he'll stop again No doubt in his mind where he's going He doesn't care for his hair or his teeth And if the truth were known, he's a bit of a thief Innocently lies and it's showing Knowing he's your friend in the end 
To the extent that the term sleeper hit can have meaning on an album like this, Dog's Life is my pick for the sleeper hit of Octopus. On my first handful of listens to this album, when I immediately loved the album as a whole, Dog's Life was certainly a track that I found nice enough, but it certainly didn't wow me in the same way some of the more striking material did. It's the album's shortest track, clocking in at only a little over three minutes. And it doesn't have the same quivering energy or the same rapid-fire burst of ideas that some other tracks here do. Lyrically, it's nothing more than what it shows on the surface, just a glimpse into the daily life of a dog done in a way that feels almost childlike. In theory, this should be a relative throwaway. So why did this track, which I continued for a while to insist wasn't really that remarkable, why did it keep such a nagging hold on me for years and years until I finally gave in to loving it? Eventually it hit me. This track feels to me like a theoretical White Album track. Hmm. Maybe an elusive McCartney-Harrison collaboration. Stuck into a snow globe and shaken up with a dash of goofy orchestration in the vein of something from Smile thrown in. This way of hearing the track becomes all the harder for me to escape when I listen to its midsection. Maybe I'm overthinking it, and Dog's Life really isn't all that much. But the longer I live with this, the more I think this should be a shoe-in for the Who the Hell Writes This Hall of Fame. Simultaneously memorable, tweaked, and silly material like this would essentially disappear from the band's albums very soon, and I am super happy this is here. Yeah, the, the White Album slash Smile comparison I, I had never thought of that, but that's absolutely bang on. Yeah, that's a very good comparison. Yeah. Uh, Dog's Life, in the liner notes of the album, they they mentioned this as, as being a, a tribute to their roadies. And I I think that interpretation works. Like, he's a little unkempt and smelly, but he gets the job done. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's I, I kind of always took that at face value and I never considered that it might also be a song just about a literal dog and I thought it was like fun before but now I love it because Gentle Giant absolutely get it like dogs are in many ways pretty gross creatures you know (laughs) they they poop all over the place you take them to the beach they roll around on a dead shark they eat out of the garbage They, they get hair all over and also, uh, without them, life would be a mistake. Yes. The lovable, shaggy, grubby nature of a dog is just perfectly captured in this song. I think it's just great. Um, but Phil, how about you? So I have mixed feelings about this one. Sure. 
I respect that it exists. I think it's clever and well-constructed. I don't actually enjoy listening to it that much. It's fine. It's easily my least favorite track on this record. I can see that. I never skip it or anything, but I don't know. I think there's something a little unpleasant about it, (coughs) which, I mean, is by design. It's not like, you know, I'm like, ooh, I don't think they realized that this was unpleasant sounding. They knew it was. (laughs) They, They knew it was dissonant and weird. But it, for some reason, it just doesn't connect with me. Again, there's cool parts. And like at this gentle giant, we're so good at this point. There is a floor to yeah. how little I can think of any of their songs. I would still call this solidly pretty good. But yeah, of all the good songs on this album, this is solidly my least favorite. If you pray hard enough, you can change into a dog person. <laughs> all right, let's move on to track seven. Think of me with kindness. Why am I using words no more to say without you? Close the door, put out the lights and go. Your shadow falls between us Never more, I'll never know There, memories of sorrow When there's no tomorrow On the first few Gentle Giant albums, writing credits were officially divided evenly between the three Shulman brothers and Kerry Manier. As part of his 2015 remix of Octopus, however, producer Stephen Wilson provided extra nuance in terms of who did what. Derek and Phil shared responsibility for lyrics, and the music itself primarily came from Ray and from Kerry. According to Stephen Wilson, Carrie wrote all the tracks on side one, with the exception of A Cry for Everyone, and Ray wrote all the tracks on side two, with the exception of Think of Me with Kindness. Even if some combination of Phil and Derek wrote the lyrics, which are loosely inspired by the Lord Byron poem When We Two Parted, this is essentially, at its core, just a stately keyboard-heavy ballad with Carrie taking the vocals so it makes sense that he would have written the music. Carrie didn't do a lot of relatively simple, atmosphere-heavy songs with Gentle Giant, but the ones he did consistently rate as ones that I really enjoy. The 1974 album The Power and the Glory boasts the track Aspirations, which I am absolutely over the moon in love with. Yeah! See the way we live our 
1975 album Freehand has the track His Last Voyage, which highlights the second side of that album. Yeah. final album, the new wave-influenced Civilian of 1980, has the track Shadows on the Street, which I quite like. I don't know that song, but yeah, anyway. It's good. said, this wasn't a primary approach for the band, but it was a tool in their toolbox. And things typically turned out well when they made use of it. With all that said, I almost love this. The one slight issue I have with this track, and the reason that I rate this one somewhat behind aspirations, is that Carrie and the band couldn't quite leave well enough alone with it. I can't help but feel that As the song was coming together, the band decided it didn't have enough in the way of stereotypical gentle giant elements like unexpected melody and rhythmic twists. And so the band stuck this into the song. The love that love could not forgive is gone and tells no call to live. And we who look in beauty's law must now through all think back on before there's nothing wrong with this part in and of itself but it has always felt weirdly artificial and unnatural to me in a way that so much of the other weirdness on this album doesn't this is all the more striking to me when this passage is immediately preceded by something as simple and cathartic as this. I wonder, did you know? In the end, I really like Think of Me with Kindness a lot. 
I just wish the band had had the guts to hold itself back enough to make the track into something I would love. All right, Phil, do you think of this song with kindness? A great deal of it. So it it took me a while to really notice this song just because it's such a quiet, simple song compared to everything else on this record. Yep. And, you know, it comes right after, you know, a lot of the dissonant weirdness of Dog's Life, and it can be almost hard to notice. But once you do, it's just a really, really nice song. I don't even mind the part that you don't like very much, John. Like, I think that works. I think it's pretty nice. I don't have a problem with it. I would put this up there with any of their kind of ballady songs. Again, just a very, very nice vocal melody sung well. I love that, you know, I think that's a French horn. It's a mellophone. A mellophone. Okay. (laughs) That part is fantastic. And it provides the kind of like straightforward catharsis that Gentle Giant usually don't provide. But yeah, it's a gorgeous song. I like it a ton. Yeah, this is this is one that crept up on me. Uh, But I I like it a lot. Not as much as I like some of their other uh, softer material, like the aforementioned Aspirations and His Last Voyage. I love those ones. But this isn't too far behind. You know, the main melodic material it's constructed from, a lesser band would take that and, and make kind of a cheesy ballad out of it. Yeah. You know, it could be in the wrong hands. It could be you know, a journey song. Uh, <laughs> but Gentle Giant have the good taste to, to keep it from being too gloppy. Good taste is a, a flawed concept, but you know what I mean? It's like, yep. right. They don't they don't pile in a whole bunch of insert emotion here flourishes <laughs> or whatever. No. They keep it nice and understated with that mellophone solo comes in and it, you know, it gets to the big moment. I, I raise my imaginary lighter with pride. Yep. All right. Well, we're already at the the last track of the album. Track eight is River. In 1973, shortly after the release of Octopus and after a tour of Italy, Phil Schulman decided to leave Gentle Giant, retiring from the music industry at age 35 due to burnout and concerns about how life as a musician affected his wife and children. This created a rift between Phil and his brothers that took years to mend, though they did fully mend it. But it also forced changes in Gentle Giant, 
who decided that they should keep going in Phil's absence. They made seven more studio albums before calling it quits in 1980. Gentle Giant fandom tends to absolutely love the next four albums, which are still very much prog rock, and to dislike the final three albums, which found the band attempting to move in a more contemporary and mainstream direction for a public that had no interest. I don't really agree with Gentle Giant fandom at large about either of these stretches. I really like the band's final two albums, and while I certainly enjoy the four prog rock albums they did without Phil, I also think his departure took away a good deal of the warmth and quirky eccentricity that I love so much about the albums Phil did with the band, Octopus included. In particular, on the band's next album, In a Glass House of 1973, the band stretched out the track lengths considerably by their standards, and they did this in part by inserting a lot of long instrumental passages of a chops-flashing variety that they had only used very selectively previously. Again, fan consensus frequently puts this album near the very top of the band's output, and I am very aware that mine is a minority opinion, but the album leaves me a little cold. I think it's probably their most normal prog rock album. Yeah. Like, it doesn't sound as big. It doesn't need a gentle giant to be made. I agree. I mentioned all of this in the context of River, the album closer for Octopus, for this reason. Even if the band had no idea that Phil was about to leave or that their sound was about to change, when I listen to the band's output in order... River inevitably sounds to me like a bridge between the band's work up to this point, which I love, and the work the band would do later, which I love somewhat less. Here's the thing, though. I absolutely love River, and I would much rather listen to it than much of what the band did later. River is easily the longest track on Octopus, lasting nearly six minutes, and aside from that great recurring guitar and electric violin bit, and some relatively unimportant vocal parts, it centers almost exclusively on lengthy instrumental sections. In these sections, there are two parts I want to clip that I think highlight what the band somewhat lost in later albums. Production is a little different, but this kind of atmospheric bit, keyboard heavy and a little mystical, shows up all over the place on acquiring the taste in particular. And the band became much less interested in this kind of sound painting later on. Here's the second clip. Thank you. 
one moment on this album I could imagine on classic rock radio. I'm about to get to that. (laughs) Remember when I said earlier that Gentle Giant could do just fine dabbling in more mainstream forms of 70s rock when they put their mind to it? Gary Green absolutely rips things up here and beyond, with the other band members recognizing that they should just get out of his way for a while. And this doesn't sound at all like a bunch of eggheads saying, we will play the common man's music now. Watch us rock out with our jamming tunes. This is elite 1970s dad rock here. There's no good reason this passage couldn't fit in just fine on any classic Classic rock rock that rocks station. (laughs) Except that it's made by a prog rock band named Gentle Giant. Anyway, River is a delightful way to end this album. In a way, it doesn't entirely make sense on the album, but this album doesn't entirely make sense either. And that final guitar and electric violin note leaves a great impression. Yeah, River to me, it's a song where the the production is the lead instrument. Yeah. I, I don't mean to suggest that any of it's unmemorable because plenty of it is, but the main thing that I'm impressed with is the way they were intentionally using the studio as a way to sort of take you into different environments, so to speak. And you can hear just how, like if you listen to early Gentle Giant, the first three albums, and then listen to Octopus, you can hear just how much better their production has gotten. And they're doing a lot of things like bringing reverb in and out to sort of, uh, Make make you know some parts of the song sound more distant, some some uh, really in your face, like lots of the the more atmospheric passages in this song, and then it slams into that violin guitar riff where it's just no reverb but all total clarity, uh, and the the ending almost uh, it's almost like a false false ending, yeah, because it just stops so abruptly you're you're expecting it to start up again. There's also that uh, that weird swishing noise that's present throughout, which is that's John Weathers playing a Verispeed cymbal. Sure is. <laughs> he's he's just doing a, a one big long cymbal roll and then they're they're messing with the tape speed to make it sound like Stockhausen just walked in the studio or something. Uh, and then also uh, that guitar solo we just heard, we, we just heard clipped there. That's as Dave Gilmore as Gentle Giant ever get. Yeah. Just like the the guitar solo scat singing technique. That sounds like it could have been chopped from Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, Gary Green was a blues guitarist. Gentle Giant was just his job and he enjoyed it, but he was a blues guitarist. He knew what he was doing with this stuff. Right. But yeah, this song almost reminds me of of something in a way. it, It reminds me like of Tortoise. And I'm not I'm not thinking of any real song in particular that it sounds like it's more just the way they could take you to different places just through changes in production sound.
But Phil, what do you think of River? Yeah, it's another great song. Again, I agree with John that, you know, it's a shame, like, the band kind of stopped doing stuff like this after this. But this wasn't the only track like this they did back in the old days. Like, the last song on Acquiring the Taste was this song called Plain Truth. Yeah. Which, you know, it's a little bit less twisty than this, but has the same kind of vibe. It's another song I could imagine, you know, a classic rock station actually picking up. feels like just a twistier kind of version of that where again you've got like a pretty cool like guitar and violin alternating thing there's a pretty cool like john weathers drum solo where i haven't talked a lot about his drumming on this album but it is elite yes yeah it's really good Again, this whole this whole thing just sounds really natural. Like it sounds when they're being atmospheric, it works. When they're rocking out, it works. Again, like John mentioned, that it doesn't sound like you know a bunch of eggheads saying we're going to rock out now, which uh, is exactly what Gentle Giant did on their album The Missing Piece, <laughs> which is not one I would particularly recommend. But here they're still you know firing on all cylinders, and it's great. So I guess it's not a song that has a ton of explicitly memorable parts, because I don't think it's really that kind of song. Right. It's all about, you know, the atmosphere and just how the cool little atmospheric parts and solos all jam together. And I do love the ending, too, because it actually has a false end. Right. And then it comes back and then there's a false, false end. Yep. And then the album just slams (laughs) to a halt. Which I think is a really cool, obviously intentional choice. I yep. love yeah. that they did that. It's a really cool track. All right. Well, we have now discussed all eight tentacles of the octopus. John, what are your final thoughts? Many years ago, when I actively wrote for my music reviews website, somebody asked me what exactly I was trying to accomplish with my site. After a little bit of thought, the answer I gave was that I wanted to convince fans of the Rolling Stones that they should listen to Gentle Giant (laughs) and fans of Gentle Giant that they should listen to the Rolling Stones. Gentle Giant was a fascinating band with an idiosyncratic approach, one that made a lot of music that was very different in key ways from bands they were frequently compared to, let alone more mainstream music. But they didn't emerge in a vacuum. And I insist that they're not as different from other music of the 1970s as they might initially seem. 
Returning to a quote from Derek Shulman that I mentioned in the artist history section, Gentle Giant had a desire to take every kind of music that interested them, shove it into a funnel, and see what came out the other end in the combination. As somebody whose music listening habits as an adult have come to include routinely putting my full iPod collection on shuffle, a practice that often leads to me hearing a seemingly absurd sequence of artists such as Iron Maiden, followed by Sibelius, followed by the modern jazz quartet. The idea of disparate forms of music having more in common than you would expect appeals to me. Gentle Giant, as much as any artist I'm familiar with, embraced the ethos of all music is music. And I think this is why they've ultimately grown on me so much. Maybe my mental shorthand of Octopus as an accidental pop album is ultimately the result of a contrarian streak, but I genuinely think there's something to it. And if this mindset regarding music appeals to you at all, Gentle Giant and Octopus may be for you every bit as much as they are for me. I like that a lot. Phil, what are your thoughts? I mean, Octopus is a pretty, you know, S-tier essential prog rock album, which it's not even really my favorite Gentle Giants album. I probably prefer both Acquiring the Taste and Three Friends to sure. Octopus. But at a certain point, it's, you know, taste is going to taste. And Octopus is probably the Gentle Giants album to hear. If you're interested in this band, I mean, this is where you should start. Just full stop. If you like it, then there's a whole lot more for you in their catalog to varying degrees of success, some more successful in my opinion, some less successful in almost everybody's opinion. (laughs) But yeah, it's just a really interesting kind of music. Like they don't really even sound like other prog rock bands. I guess the closest other prog rock band I can think of to their sound might be like early Soft Machine. Yeah. Hmm. Like... That's about as close as you can come, and that's not even really a good comparison. It's still not one-to-one. But yeah, they're a band that really did carve out their own niche that is just for them, and I think that alone means they're worth your time. Yeah, Gentle Giant are a band that I, I wouldn't just recommend to people who are into stuff like Genesis and Yes, but also just anybody who likes music that's quirky and odd and interesting and smart it can appeal to i think a lot of people because they keep everything super tight and at their best they're always super catchy and their albums are done in less than 40 minutes so you never feel you never feel like you're done before the album's over and octopus is i'd say the best gentle giant album not just because it's their best set of songs, but it's also just the most packed. Yes. Like for for a 34-minute album, Octopus has a lot of music on it. That's going to be my final thesis on it. So, John, somebody hears Octopus. They like Octopus. What else should they listen to? So I can recommend a lot of Gentle Giant material, but I want to leave some for Mike and Phil. So I'm limiting myself to two albums. First, I want to recommend the band's self-titled debut, which after all of these years might still be my second favorite from the band. It was produced by Tony Visconti, 
who loved working with Gentle Giant. And there's a certain fascinating charm to hearing the band at the point where it had fully embraced prog rock, but also still held out hope that the band could ride the public's growing fondness for prog rock to mainstream success. I'm going to clip the incredibly charming Isn't It Quiet and Cold, which bounces around my head a minimum of weekly. I'm going to recommend is the band's 1977 live album Playing the Fool, recorded on the tour for the 1976 album Interview. As I mentioned earlier, the band played a lengthy medley of octopus material on a regular basis. And among many other gems, this album captures one of those medleys. The band would make some fascinating modifications and additions to the material in a live setting including the decision to make the midsection of the advent of Panurge feature a recorder's quartet. Octopus is probably my favorite Gentle Giant album, but the Gentle Giant album I listen to the most is probably Freehand. Yeah. It continues the Octopus uh, method of writing songs that are so busy and intricate that they have no business being as catchy as they are. And the songs on Freehand are some catchy little buggers. It's got Just the Same, it's got the title track, and it's got On Reflection, which is one of my absolute favorites. The song is an honest-to-God four-voice fugue. Yeah. They managed to write one of those and also make it catchy. Like, how? In my way did I use you, do you think I really abused you? On Reflection now, it doesn't matter. How, how can, can you say, you say? What do you have to recommend? 
Okay, so I will say, you know, the first three Gentle Giant albums are just all elite tier. Yep. Get those. But I want to talk a little bit about some of their lesser known material. In particular, you know, John mentioned earlier that their last three albums had them like flirting with a more mainstream sound. The first album they did in that style, The Missing Piece, is okay. Gentle Giant never really made a what I would consider a bad album, but I think that's their worst album. Then they made Giant for a Day, which basically killed their career dead because (laughs) all the prog rock fans hated it and it didn't attract any new fans. So that was kind of the end of them. I think it's a pretty good album, but uh, not very many people agree with me. I do. That's going to lead me to the first album I'm going to recommend, which is actually their final album, Civilian, which isn't even really underrated so much as it's just unknown. But it's really good. It featured the band, you know, kind of trying to bring new wave sounds into Gentle Giant's repertoire. And that may sound silly, but it actually does work. Other album I'm going to recommend, and there's not a lot of bands that sound like Gentle Giant, but there is one album I have that does kind of sound like Gentle Giant, both in spirit and sound, and that is the final album from the band Griffin, 1977's <laughs> Treason, where they had Griffin had just finished touring with Yes, and they had kind of gotten away from their original sound, which was kind of just you know medieval folk music. And they ended up with this album called Treason that absolutely nobody really cared about. But they were doing some really interesting things on this album, and it's a shame that it, again, pretty much killed their career. And I'm going to clip a song here called Flash in the Pantry, which (laughs) has some severe Gentle Giant vibes. I'll get some tansy. We need more from the core. Where's the mother of time behind you? The gold of pleasure, that golden rod, flag of the marsh, or Mercury's dog. Rattle speed clouds, five fingers around. Now you weave. I got to hear more Griffin. Everything I've heard yeah, by me has too. been really interesting. All right. Next episode. We talked about XTC a few years ago, and now we're going to talk about their psychedelic alter egos. Rich will be talking about chips from the chocolate fireball by the Dukes of Stratosphere. Roll credits. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Octopus and other albums by Gentle Giant at your local record store. 
And you can also buy or stream it at the usual places, such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Instagram for news and updates. Visit John's music review archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org, home of his hexadecimal-based rating system. Octopus receives a D, meaning it's great slash very good. Editing is by Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to, uh, I can't pronounce that, <laughs> for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Would you describe your music? Well, well I guess we're going to be sort of a kind of combination of that. The orchestra is between five to six. Very arranged. It's quite interesting. Basically, it's all different.